Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now to the Gospel of John. And we are in chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 40. John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. While you're turning there, back in the 1980s, there was a couple, Jason and Shirley McClure, who had a dream. Their dream was to open up a special nursing home that focused on treating Alzheimer's patients. Shirley's father had suffered with that disease and they knew a lot about the special needs that people with Alzheimer's have. And this was their dream to uh, open and to build this nursing home. That nursing home, however, was not built. It was not built because the city in which they lived, the city of Long Beach, California, under pressure from some people in the community, did not approve it. They went back and forth for some time and they continued to apply, they continued to be rejected. And finally, the McClures decided to sue. And in 1992, McClure versus Long Beach, California went to trial. And all the arguments were made and all the evidence was presented. The law was explained. And after the trial, this jury, it was a federal jury, so it had to be unanimous. This jury went back to the jury room and they began to deliberate. And they kept on deliberating. And hours turned into days and days turned into weeks. And then finally after, get this, Four and a half months of jury deliberation after four and a half months of going back and forth and arguing with each other, they finally came to a verdict in favor of the defendants, awarding them $22.5 million. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, that's the longest jury deliberation in history. Well, the point of that story is you can only remain in the jury room for so long. Eventually, you've got to come out. Eventually, you have to come to a verdict. Now, that is true physically, but that is true on a spiritual level as well. Years ago, uh, Josh McDowell wrote uh, a famous book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's uh, an old book, but if you are considering the claims of Christ, it is still an excellent resource. I would encourage you to read it. But he called that book Evidence That Demands a Verdict because when you consider the evidence for Christ and the claims that Christ made, you discover that eventually you must come to a verdict. You cannot remain in the jury room forever. You have to decide how you are going to respond to Jesus. Well, we're coming to the end of John chapter 7. We've been in this chapter for a while now. You know that the context is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the last time we were here, a couple of weeks ago, uh, on that last day of the feast, when there were thousands and thousands of people crammed into the temple, Jesus, at some moment, the Bible says, he cried out and he said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. 
and rivers of living water will flow from his heart. That was really the greatest invitation that has ever been given, the invitation to drink the living water of eternal life freely through Christ. Jesus gave this glorious invitation, and what we're going to read in these next verses is how the people responded to that invitation. And you're going to see that not everyone positively responded to that invitation, and the people responded in many different ways. But as we look at this passage, I believe there's some lessons here for us to learn to help us to respond appropriately. And first of all, I want you to see in this the division Jesus brings. The division Jesus brings. Look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. You'll notice there were numerous ways in which the people responded to Jesus in these verses. There were some people who said, he is not just a prophet, but the prophet. That was a reference uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. When Moses said, one day God's going to send a special prophet like me, like Moses. Just like Moses was a mediator between Israel and God, he said, one day this prophet will come and he will be an, a mediator between God and all of humanity. By the way, Peter quoted from that passage of Scripture in the book of Acts and said, yes, that applies to Jesus but we also know that he was much more than just a prophet. There were some in this passage who said that Jesus is the Christ. That was a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God told David that one day a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. His kingdom would have no end. Well, obviously he wasn't referring to any regular king. This too was fulfilled by Jesus, which is why the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament starts off by saying that Jesus was the son of David. Yes, indeed, he was the Christ. But then there were some people who said, well, he's just a man because he can't be the Messiah. And did you notice the argument they used for why Jesus could not be the Messiah? They said, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. They did not know, in other words, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Their problem was simply ignorance. Now, we have to give those guys a little bit of credit because at least they were trying to base their opinion of Jesus on the word of God. Some people responded by seeing Jesus as the enemy. Verse 44 says that some wanted to seize him or to arrest him. The Pharisees called him a deceiver. Back in verse 12, some people said, eh, he's a good man. And so you have all of these different ways in which the people were responding to Jesus. And that's why John says in verse 43, 
So there was a division among the people. Why? Because of him. Because of Jesus. That word for division comes from a root meaning to tear apart. It's as if the people were being torn apart over this. But notice what tore them apart was not what Jesus said about politics or education or economics. No, what was tearing the people apart was what Jesus had said about himself. What tore them apart was what he claimed to be and what he said that he would do. And it's not that Jesus wanted to divide people for the sake of dividing the people. The problem is because of our sin, because of our fallenness, because of our rebellion against God, there is division. And all of a sudden, the Prince of Peace becomes the great divider. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 52? A lot of people try to forget this. But let me remind you, Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. There's that word again. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Now hear me very carefully. Jesus brings peace to the person who trusts in him. But he brings division to the peoples of the earth. He brings divisions because he makes these claims about himself. And at the end of the day, they're either true or they're not true. And it's one or the other. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he's not. Either he died on the cross or he didn't. Either he rose from the grave or he didn't. Either he's Lord or he is not. Either he's coming again or he's not. And there is no other option. There's no in-between. There's no sitting on the fence between these two. And thus, there is division. And the most important question really in all of life is we think about all of the different ways that these people responded to Jesus' offer to come and drink this living water. The most important question is simply this, how will I respond to Jesus? A lot of people ask a question, and it really is a good question. Pastor, why is there so much writing on how I respond to Jesus? Why is there so much at stake in terms of whether or not I believe in Jesus, whether I follow Jesus? Well, I would answer that in two ways. I would say, first of all, how a person responds to Jesus is actually, according to Jesus, a reflection of the state of their heart. Jesus said back in chapter 3 that men do not believe in him because they prefer the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Thus, how somebody responds to Jesus really reveals what is already the sinful state of that person's heart, the rebelliousness in their heart. But I would also point out that how you respond to Jesus is going to shape everything else about you. How you think, how you speak, how you live, how you treat others, 
your worldview, your values, all of this will be shaped by an encounter with Christ, and all of this will put you at odds with the world around you. And yes, Jesus said there would be division. A couple of years ago, my family went camping. We did a cross-country camping road trip that you blessed us with the opportunity to take. I drove 8,000 miles in one road trip and enjoyed every minute. But I can remember probably four or five or six times we were out west and we would be driving and we would see that sign that says, you are now crossing the Continental Divide. The continental divide, that geographical line that determines really how the rivers flow. And in North America, the continental divide is what divides the east and the west. Do you realize when a single drop of rain falls from the sky, its destiny is determined by which side of the continental divide it falls? If a single drop of rain falls from the sky and lands just to the east of the Continental Divide, it's going to be absorbed by the streams which flow into the rivers which lead to the Gulf, which lead to the Atlantic Ocean. But if that drop of rain falls just to the west of the Continental Divide, it's going to be absorbed by streams and flow into rivers which lead to the Pacific Ocean. And whether it winds up in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean all comes down to where it falls on which side of the Continental Divide. You realize, according to Jesus, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our eternity, when it comes to heaven and hell, it all comes down to where we fall and how we respond to Jesus. I think probably the greatest example of this, what this looks like that God has given to us in Scripture, is probably the example of the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus as he hung upon the cross. And you remember the story as Jesus was crucified. He was in the middle with one to his right and the other to his left. And at first, both of the men reviled him and insulted him. But then something happened as one of those men hung there and observed Jesus. A few hours later, that same man had a change of heart. And he said to Jesus, Oh, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Here were two criminals, two men who'd committed the same crime. They were under the same judgment. They were under the same condemnation. They both died the same day. And one went to heaven. And one went to hell. And what was the difference? Jesus and how they responded to him. There is a British pastor named Alastair Begg, and he told a very humorous parable about that man on the cross who was saved. Probably four or five years ago, some of you are nodding your head because you've seen it online. But he told this parable that I love so much about that man who was saved. I want to read to you what he said. He said, think about that man on the cross. 
I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? You were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? Well, that's what the angel must have said. What are you doing here? The man said, I don't know. The angel said, what do you mean you don't know? And he said, because I don't know. And so the angel says, excuse me while I get my supervisor, angel. And the supervisor says, we have just a few questions for you. First, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy says, I never heard of it in my life. And the angel says, well, what about the doctrine of Scripture? And the guy just stares at him. And finally, the angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And the guy said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. The man on the middle cross said I could come. You know what that is? That is the spiritual continental divide. Yes, brothers and sisters, the gospel is divisive. Jesus said it would be so. It divided people then. It divides people now. And I know we live in a world in which people are divided over everything. Coke versus Pepsi, DC versus Marvel, you name it. People are so divided. But listen to me. This is one thing that is worth dividing about. And don't be surprised when following Christ means division. Don't be surprised if following Jesus means you are opposed by this world. Again, Jesus said it would be so. And yes, we see the division that Jesus brings. We also see in this passage the impact Jesus has the impact Jesus has. Look at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Back in verse 32, when the Pharisees heard that some of the people were starting to believe in Jesus, they said, We can't have this. And so they sent the officers, kind of like the temple police, to go and arrest Jesus. Okay, we come to verse 45. They're now returning, but they're returning empty-handed. They don't have Jesus. And of course, the priests and the Pharisees, they want to know why. Why haven't you done what we told you to do? And I love the response of these officers because think about what they could have said. They could have covered their own tails, so to speak. They could have said, oh, well, you know, with that crowd, oh, we could not have arrested Jesus because, oh, what if there was a riot? And you know the last thing that Rome wants is a riot among the people. And you know what? That actually would have been a pretty good excuse. They probably would have gotten away with that. But they come back without Jesus, so they're in big trouble. Why are you here? Where is Jesus? Why didn't you arrest him? And I love their answer. 
No man ever spoke like this man. That was their excuse. I'm sure it was their intention to arrest Jesus, but when they got there and when they found him, maybe one of them turned to the others and said, you know what? Hey, let's hear what he has to say first. And then they listened. As he said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink, and rivers of living water will flow from your heart. And all of a sudden, these guys who were supposed to arrest Jesus, they look at each other and they said, we can't arrest this guy. Nobody ever spoke like this. And by the way, 2,000 years later, we can still say, no man has ever spoken words like this man. There's never been a philosopher or an orator or a prophet or a teacher who ever spoke words like the words that Jesus spoke. And I want you to understand here, it was not the miracles that Jesus performed that so moved these men. It wasn't his miracles. It was his words. Do you realize that the words which Jesus spoke were more powerful than the swords in their hands? They went to arrest Jesus. It was their job to arrest Jesus. They had every opportunity to arrest Jesus. But it was as if they were arrested by Jesus' words. And so we, we see the impact that Jesus had on these officers in a positive way, but we also see the impact Jesus had on these Pharisees in a very negative way. Look at verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, notice their response. Are you deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Let me give you the Howard Hardin translation of that. They're really saying, you're just cops. What do you know? You haven't been trained. You haven't been to seminary. You don't know anything. That's really what they're saying. This is called an argument from personal authority. It's like saying, well, your position can't be true because none of the so-called smart people believe that. What you're saying can't be true because none of the experts agree with you. None of the scholars agree with you. Nobody with a PhD agrees with you. This is a form of debate in which you completely ignore someone's arguments and you dismiss them because they are not a member of the club which you created. Today it might sound like, well, well, you say blank, but no one who is in authority believes that. By the way, I have seen this so many times. Parents, let me just pause and, and tell you. How many times have we seen young people who were raised in a godly home, who were raised in church, and then they go to college and they are surrounded by so-called scholars and professors who say to them, only an idiot would believe the Bible. And no one, of course, mentions Francis Collins who completed the Human Genome Project, that he is a follower of Christ. No one mentions the Wright brothers who discovered flight, but they also wrote a book on the Great Commission 
No one mentions Robert Boyle. No one mentions C.S. Lewis or the founding fathers, many of them. They just say, oh, no smart person would ever believe that. And I've seen it so many times. It is very, very difficult for many young people who have not been properly discipled to stand up under that kind of pressure. And we're seeing this over and over again. These Pharisees said, well, you guys don't know anything. You're not experts. You're not authorities. You don't have degrees by your name. And the Pharisees said, this crowd that does not know the law, they are accursed. You know what's ironic about that? They were actually the ones who were accursed. To them, it was a humiliating thought to think that, that prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles would actually get into heaven before them and that they would be on the outside looking in. I mean, sure, these Pharisees, they could quote the law. They could quote all 613 commands of the Torah, but they could not see or they would not admit that they were guilty of breaking the law. And these officers, the temple police, they may have been simple men. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the education of the Pharisees. But let me tell you, they had one thing that the religious leaders did not have, a willingness to listen, a willingness to learn, a willingness to humble themselves, and a willingness to acknowledge their guilt and their need for a Savior. That's what they had that the Pharisees did not. Do not make the mistake of the Pharisees who look down on the common man. Let me remind you of what Jesus prayed in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. When I was in seminary, I had a professor, an Old Testament professor named Gary Galliotti. And boy, he was Old Testament from head to toe. Every now and then, he'd be teaching and he'd pause and he'd look up at the classroom. He'd look up at all of us students. And he would say, you know, when I look out at all of you, I am reminded that God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. He did not have the spiritual gift of encouragement, I'll tell you that. But indeed, God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. And God will often conceal truth from those who are too proud to receive it. But then He'll reveal truth to those who will humble themselves enough to admit that they need it. And so we see this division that Jesus brings. We see this impact, both positive and negative, that Jesus has. But then we also see in this passage the consideration Jesus deserves. The consideration Jesus deserves. And I say it this way because look at verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The Pharisees 
said to the officers just a moment ago, hey, none of us, none of the Pharisees believe in Jesus. Well, it turns out that there probably was at least one of them who believed or was soon to believe in Jesus. Nicodemus, you will recall, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the great religious leaders of his day. And it was about 18 months more or less, 18 months earlier, when in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus, the Bible says, at night. He came at night probably because he had questions about Jesus and uh, he didn't want to uh, be seen with Jesus. But he came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, you recall, you, yes, you, even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. Now, this man, Nicodemus, the Bible doesn't tell us what he did after that, but I kind of have a theory I believe that during those 18 months, Nicodemus has been searching the Scriptures to see whether or not they line up with what Jesus says, to see whether he really indeed is the Messiah. I believe that during these 18 months, God has been dealing with him. And we do see Nicodemus one more time in the Gospel of John about six months later in John chapter 19 when the Bible says that Nicodemus along with Joseph of Arimathea, buried Jesus. And do you recall? It was Nicodemus who donated all those spices to, uh, to, to, to uh, uh, unhir, to anoint. I hate it when I can remember the Spanish word, but not the English. <laughs> it was Nicodemus who gave all those spices to anoint the body of Jesus in order to honor him after he died on the cross. But here in John chapter 7, Nicodemus simply asked a question, and it was a simple question. It was a good question. He said, hey, guys, um, I don't know, but you think maybe perhaps we should hear Jesus out? Don't you think maybe we should hear what he has to say? Does the law allow us to convict him before he has even had a trial? That's a good question. And notice how the Pharisees responded. Are you from Galilee? Now, what does that have to do with what Nicodemus just said? Nothing at all, really. This is called an ad hominem attack. This is when you attack a person's character instead of their ideas. And it's always easier to attack the person than it is their arguments or their beliefs. You see, these Jews from Judea, man, they look down on those Jews from Galilee. It would kind of be like somebody from New York saying, what do those guys know? They're from Mississippi. Of course, those guys in Mississippi could also say, what do those guys know? They're from New York. But that's another story. They looked down on these folks from Galilee, and guess what? Nicodemus was from Galilee. And they said, what do you know? You're from Galilee. And so they said, Nicodemus, search. Look, has there ever been a prophet that came from Galilee? Actually, Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. Elijah their own scriptures told them that, yes, God had, in fact, called prophets out of Galilee. 
but they just automatically dismissed what Nicodemus was saying. Why? You're from Galilee. But here's the, the real tragedy. When someone came and spoke to them truth, they were not willing to receive it because they didn't like the messenger. They weren't willing to hear it because the messenger was from Galilee. You've heard that phrase perhaps, never judge a book by its cover. Nicodemus came. He gave them words of truth, words of wisdom, but the Pharisees refused to hear him because of his cover. And they refused to even consider what Jesus was saying. All Nicodemus said was maybe we should just consider, maybe we should just hear him out. And they began to attack him. That's how they responded to Jesus. Years ago, there was a Methodist minister by the name of Clovis Chapel. And he told a story about a man he said was a member of his church uh, who was traveling to Kentucky and in Kentucky, he met and fell in love with a young woman. They got married, and after they got married, this man took her back to his hometown of Chicago to live with him there. And for three years, they had a beautiful marriage in Chicago. After three years, however, something happened. One day, she had a seizure, and her mind just did not recover. All of a sudden, after this seizure happened, on her best days, she had some dementia. On her worst days, she would just scream continuously. Well, this man continued to faithfully minister and care for his wife as best as he could through all of that. One day, his doctor made a suggestion. He said, what if you took her back home? What if you took her back home to Kentucky and brought her back to that home where she grew up? What if she had uh, an environment and surroundings that she was familiar with? Maybe that would help her. And so this man said, you know what? I'm willing to try anything. And so that's what he did. He took his wife and they moved back to Kentucky and they went back to that home where she grew up and he, according to Clovis Chapel, he had to literally pick her up and carry her inside and he laid her down in that bed where she used to sleep as a young woman before she was married and he said she began to sleep like she had not slept in a very long time and then he said something happened. She woke up and she sat up in her bed and she said to her husband very clearly, I feel like I've been on a long journey. Where have you been? And he said to her, my dear, I've been right here waiting for you all along. I think maybe God could say that to some of us this morning. A lot of people love to ask, where's God? And I believe he would say, right here, waiting for you all along. 2,000 years ago, God 
responded. He responded to us, and he responded to our need and our sin and our rebellion by sending his only begotten son, and he came from heaven to earth, and he lived a perfect sinless life, and he laid down his life on the cross, taking upon himself the sin and the, the punishment that we deserved, and then on that third day he rose again, and now he waits for your response. And the question is, How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to this offer? If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And rivers of life will flow from his heart. Will you respond to Christ today? Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, knowing that we would have a need, knowing that we would sin, knowing that we would rebel. You already had a plan in place that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And when we were separated from you, and when we were at enmity with you, when we could not save or help ourselves, you sent Jesus, from heaven to earth, to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we deserve to die. And he rose again. And now, oh God, you extend to us this glorious offer of salvation, of living water, eternal life and salvation through Jesus Christ. We've seen in your word this morning some of the many different ways in which people responded to that offer in John chapter 7. And unfortunately, most of it wasn't good. But yet, here we are today, and you're still waiting for some to respond. God, I pray that every man, woman, boy, and girl here in this place would respond by coming to Christ in faith and receiving Him as Savior and Lord. Father, would you speak to us all and show us exactly what you'd have us to do, how we should respond to this message, and how we can apply it to our lives. And for those who've received this offer, God, how I pray that we would then go out and extend this offer to the world around us. God, we thank you and we praise you.